have we got an interview for you guys. We are going to talk to a presidential candidate and in fact, she is the most successful female presidential candidate in US history. Yes, Jill Stein. So uh, you ran for the Green Party uh, as the Green Party nominee in 2012. I got over 450,000 votes, the most a woman has ever gotten uh, for a president. Uh, and I understand that uh, you want to run again. Is that is that true? Uh, it, it is true, and uh, in fact, I am running again and um, fighting hard. And there are a lot of unhappy campers out there that uh, are looking for more voices and more more choices for good reason. So now, Dr. Jill Stein uh, went to Harvard Medical School, and she's uh, was practicing internal medicine until you decided to get into politics. Uh, how deeply do you regret that decision? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, I, I say I'm now practicing political medicine because it's the mother of all illnesses. And, you know, I, I feel like um, there's no easy way out there. You know, if you're a working person, uh, hard to find a job and hard to find a wage and hard to keep a roof over your head. And if you're a young person, very hard to get out of uh, college debt and, and find a job. So, you know, I feel like we're all struggling. And those of us who have the privilege of running for office, you know, we're struggling too. That is if you're not a part of the problem. <laughs> you know, yeah. so I think it's um that's just the the you know, it's the sign of our times that we're in a moment of of great struggle here. And in my view, we've got to struggle with a very corrupt political system as well. Well that's Certainly true. Uh, the, the question is how we struggle with it. We'll talk about that, and uh, and I want to get back to how you got into politics in a minute. Uh, but first, uh, r right now, I just want to be clear: you're running for the nomination of the Green Party. You don't have the nomination yet, right? I mean, you had it in 2012. It's exceedingly likely you'll get it in 2016. But how does that process work? How, how do you, how does the Green Party sort out who? Who gets the nomination? It's like the other big parties. Each state has uh, has a process. Some of them run primaries, and some of them hold conventions. And uh, in August, all the states get together, and we have a national convention, and we decide our our candidate at that point. And truth to tell, if you were trying to find the other Green Party candidates, and there are a few. Uh, that seem to be running informally, you'd be very hard pressed to find them to find a website or a Facebook page. Does the Green Party politics get dirty? Uh, do, they, do you guys run negative ads against each other? <laughs> They're not green enough. <laughs> I saw him throwing away a Coke can the other day in the regular garbage. Uh, no, I don't think so. Um, I mean, we don't get down and dirty. Uh, I think we're always like raising the bar on each other, and mm -hmm. you know, are we? And it, usually it's not green enough. It's like, are we um, uh, are we in the social movement enough? You know, are we out in the street enough? Are we uh, working for Black Lives Matter enough? You know, we're very uh, conscious of our uh, social um, goals and obligations. Do you have a bumper sticker that says uh, "Green Lives Matter"? <laughs> Green parties matter. <laughs> that's a good one. I'll yeah, well, that's that is an issue, obviously. So, does anybody cover the convention in in yeah. August? Oh yeah. Like do ABC News, yada yada. The no, video? not the big guys. No, yeah. uh, I mean there was a time when they did the first Green Party convention I went to in 2002. I think we had USA Today was there. I don't know if the other mm. big press was there, but okay. you know that back kind then of, that was a big deal. USA Today, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and I mean still that would be a big deal for the Green Party if they if they showed up right now. Yeah. You know, the, we call them the O press, not the press. We call them the O press and the repress because their business is to black out. The uh, non-corporate uh, choices. So, uh, you know, I just talked about it on the show today in regards to Bernie Sanders. He's raised more money, mm -hmm. or more from in, from individual donors than Barack Obama did at this time in 2008. And Barack Obama had received tremendous press, and Bernie Sanders receives very little press, let alone the Green Party. Yeah. So, yeah. let me ask you about that. What, what do you? Why do you think the press doesn't give progressives and specifically the Green Party more more attention? So, I'll, I'll tell you. How I learned about that. Mm -hmm. In 2002, I got tricked into running for office for the first time. <laughs> I was running for governor against uh -huh. Mitt Romney, and we fought our way into a televised debate because even back then the public was absolutely tearing its hair out, like mm -hmm. hungering for something real uh, in those debates. And inside that TV studio, 
Um, I, you know, gave voice to our usual agenda for cutting the military, putting our dollars into real security at home, greening our economy, health care and education, human rights, you know, the usual stuff. It all went over like a lead balloon inside the TV studio. But mm -hmm. when we walked out, I was mobbed by the press for the first time and the last time who told me that I had won the debate on the instant online viewer poll. Oh, wow. And that, like, raised the curtain for me about what was going on, that the whole press thing is, oh, you guys are too fringe to cover, is actually the terror that if we do get covered, uh, we're going to win this thing because this is where the public is, even back in 2002. That is why they cannot afford to cover us because when socialists and greens actually get into debates, we generally win. So I think the layman would ask, why? Why would the press care who wins? Uh, isn't it the liberal media? Why wouldn't they want uh, you in there to, to ah. with your liberal agenda? With our neo, the, the neoliberal media is not interested in a public interest agenda. You know, the corporate media is very interested in a corporate agenda. Period. So, what does that mean, neoliberal press? You know, it means circle the wagons around uh, the economic elite and corporations and the healthcare. Uh, you know, uh, the insurance companies and the pharmaceutical companies and don't criticize the war contractors and the candidates that are uh, rolling in their dough. I'm always amazed by the invisible hand of the, of the, of power, really, right? So because if you ask those reporters, whether they're at USA Today or ABC News or anywhere else, uh, hey, do you think you're working for corporate interests? They'd be outraged. So what do you mean? Of course not. You know, I'm I'm fighting for truth and all this stuff. How do you think they're, you know, they they one way of putting it is they're corporate overlords, but they, it, just a simpler way is they're corporate bosses, right? They, everybody has a boss, and and it trickles down from management. How do you think management gets the actual reporters to think? No, nah, I shouldn't question what the Pentagon says. Uh, you know, I if I'm Jim Acosta, I should stand up and ask President Obama. You know, we have the greatest military in the world. When are you going to get these bastards at ISIS? I don't mind the bastard talk. I mind the reference to, you know, the only answer is the military. How do they get that in Acosta's yeah. head? Well, you know, I had the privilege or the misfortune, whatever you want to call it, of kind of being here as the transition took place. Mm -hmm. uh, in 2000, when I first ran, uh, the press was beginning to clamp down, and initially I got coverage, like even local newspapers would, would cover. Mm -hmm. And then they got corporatized, and they just stopped. And I also saw reporters with integrity that covered my campaign. I saw them get fired or switched out of their jobs or edited down to where they just couldn't say it. And I had reporters who were then apologizing that they couldn't, really tell the whole story, they couldn't say that. And then those reporters who actually uh, conducted their affairs like human beings, they disappeared entirely. So, you know, I think partly it's the selection process. Um, the good guys have been chased out of town. Yeah, there's, you know, I, I don't know that it happens uh, very specifically like that all the time. I know in my case it actually did, it was quite specific at, mm -hmm. at MSNBC. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I would believe that it does happen from time to time in that way. But I think you're right that the main way that it, it happens is Darwinian uh, capitalism, where yes. if if we have a reporter that is not helping the corporate parent, well, why would we continue to pay that person? They're going to get eliminated, mm -hmm. and the cream is not going to rise to the top. The people who do the bidding of that corporation, logically so, yeah. is going to rise to the top, and the corporations generally like tax cuts. Sometimes the defense contractors own the media, oh, yeah. and and it yeah. goes on and on, right? Yeah. So that's so that's we say that because how because of how relevant it is to you. If how different an equation do you think it would be if the press covered the Green Party as much as it covered, even ten percent as much as it covered the other parties? Uh, I think we would be a force to contend with. You know, 50% of Americans now have rejected the Democratic and Republican parties. According to the latest Wall Street Journal poll, 
21% are Republican and 29% are Democrat. And 50% are either independent or, or small parties. So they're quaking in their boots that people should learn that uh, they have other choices. As you see people frustrated and, and going in a populist direction, they're, they're definitely frustrated with the establishment. Oh, yeah. And they're going populist left and right. They're going to Bernie Sanders on the Democratic side. They're going to right. Donald Trump, of all people, on the right side. Um, and, and they're not doing that, I think, just because he's a bigot and railing <laughs> against Muslims and Mexicans and saying, I'm going to protect you from the others. That's a classic right-wing fascist thing to do. And it, it does have some resonance in the Republican voters. But I think at least half of his appeal is, I'm not taking money from the donors. Yeah. I'm rich, I don't need their money, and I'm not beholden to anyone. So as you see the anti-establishment fervor go to what I imagine you think is the wrong direction, how frustrating is that for you guys when you're like, no, no, oh, yeah. we've been anti-establishment for a long time. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, very frustrating. And but you know, we've been living with this for a long time too, so it's not like this is a surprise. Uh I guess at first the shock of it was uh quite a shock, but then after a while you learn that's this is what you know our our compromised and corrupted democracy looks like. They're not going to hand you your future on a platter. Um, they're not going to hand us democracy on a platter. This is going to be a you know uh, an epic battle for our survival. And the same fight that we are fighting, you know, to fix the climate or to afford health care or to have jobs or get living wages or to stop the Trans-Pacific Partnership. You know, the gloves are off, and this is as uh, dirty and vicious a fight as the corporate predator can fight. And that corporate predator is very well, you know, armed and enabled, and they're going to fight tooth and nail. But they're fighting from a very corrupt um, establishment, which is a house of cards waiting to fall. And like uh, Woody Allen says, half of life is showing up. And the same thing is true for politics. You want to have been there, you want to have critiqued the system and laid out how these life-threatening, you know, civilization-destroying problems can actually be fixed and get it on the record and be there. So as the fall happens, you know, we're there with another option because the predators are certainly going to be there with their, um, you know, their their corporate capitalist uh, takeover option. But how, how do you get the attention uh, to your cause? How do you get followers? How do you fight back uh, against, uh, as you accurately assess, a formidable machine? Well, here's one way you do it. There are 40 million young people and not so young people who are in debt college debt with no way out. These are indentured servants and the jobs aren't there. And guess what? They're not coming back. The jobs you know, that have recovered are low-wage, part-time, insecure, uh, temporary jobs. These are lousy. And there's absolutely no sign that this is going to get better. There are many signs that it's going to continue getting worse, especially as we get the Trans-Pacific Partnership that the Democrats and the Republicans are, are fighting for. So, um, you know, we need to get the word out. Put it this way, if those 40 million young people get into their heads the wild idea that they can come out in the November 2016 election and cancel their debt, they can actually do that because 40 million of them is a plurality of, of a three-way vote. Mm -hmm. They could actually do that. And who's better prepared to get the word out and better networked than that generation who could spread that news like a wildfire and turn out 40 million irate young people who are determined to go on the record to cancel debt. We're the only campaign that will do that. Um, Bernie would make college free. Hillary says she would do it, although, you know, not really. Um, but we are the only campaign that will actually cancel student debt that would use oh, a quantitative easing. So you're saying easing. the difference between your uh, proposal and Senator Sanders is Cancel yeah, he, he's saying he would make it free going forward. Right. You would cancel the, cancel the, the debt. debt that we already has. We did so it that's for when the, the establishment corporate crooks. Why don't we do it for the young people who are the victims mm, of those corporate crooks? So that's when the establishment heads explode. They say, no, 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 you guys uh, took out those college loans. Oh, You'd yeah. be deadbeats right. if you didn't pay it back. Yeah. The system would collapse. You can't do that. And they're very hard pressed to defend that, and which is why they don't want to debate it, because you can make mincemeat out of that. And how so? Well, we bailed out the crooks who got us into this mess. Don't we owe it to the victims 
of this mess to bail them out. And we came up with 17 trillion, basically, and counting in the bailout for Wall Street and corporate America. For young people, it's about 1.3 trillion, so it's a much smaller amount. And then add to that, the bailout for Wall Street and for the big banks has essentially enabled them to continue their reckless gambling and their wild and irresponsible speculation on the taxpayer's dime. On the other hand, if you bail out young people, what do you get? You get people who can actually then do what they're trained to do. They don't have to worry about paying their debt back. They can actually take risks and enact their vision and reimagine the future, which is what we need the younger generation to do. Add to that, about half of young people now are said to be in default on their debt. This is dangerous. This can create a cascading series of defaults because that debt has also been bundled and sold off as investment instruments. So it's actually a danger to the economy to allow this very precarious debt to hang in there. So by doing a quantitative easing and dissolving that debt, you actually create a stimulus package that's perfect. And then you enable an entire generation of young people who have been sidelined and essentially taken out, removed from political discourse because they're busy trying to survive. Uh, you, you bring them back in. And that's where change always happens from young people. So this is, you know, this is like, uh, this is something that's not just good for young people. This is something we desperately need as a whole society. Do you think that we've all, if not all, a lot of us have become indentured servants to a new class of lords and we just don't know it? You know, I think it's kind of the media that doesn't know it, the corporate media that doesn't know it. Because mm -hmm. you talk to most people out there and they are fighting angry. You know, we have a death rate that's rising actually among uh, white uh, middle-aged men. Mm -hmm. Big spike in, in death rate and suicide and sort of drugs of abuse and alcohol. People are really uh, having a very hard time these days. And they're really quick to say it if you talk to them. And people are really clamoring for things that are very different from what you'll hear in the Democratic and Republican debates. You know, people want health care as a human right, and they don't want the Trans-Pacific Partnership. They don't want more corporate tax breaks. They don't want their jobs uh, exported overseas. They want, you know, the things that we're talking about. They want to cut the military. That is until this fear frenzy got whipped up, which turns out now we hear from the director of the FBI, oops, that was a mistake, bad information. The San Bernardino um, you know, massacres actually had nothing to do with ISIS or any uh, organized terror group out there. Yet There's people have been whipped like into this. Yeah, when, when we killed bin Laden, there was the initial report that he hid behind one of his wives. It's like this classic propaganda. There's no way that's true. And then a couple of days later, they're like, yeah, yeah, sorry, we made that part up about the wife. Anyway, we got him, right? And then uh, yeah. we thought he was reaching for something. And then the guy who shot him says, yeah. no, I shot him. And then I stood over him and hit him a couple times more in the head. Yeah. So that's an execution. I mean, look, yes. people are happy in general. You got to be honest, the American people are, that we executed bin Laden. But you just there was no need for the gratuitous lies. <laughs> but we get those gratuitous lies all the time and the media accepts them as fact. Well, they do. And I think the people have, the press has also whipped people into this fear frenzy, you know, that applies to Al-Qaeda and to ISIS and to terrorism, quote terrorism, you know, without understanding that this is a response to state terror, to occupation, you know, that, uh, that these you know, so-called terrorist um, groups are very much a response. And ISIS in particular grows out of the absolute devastation that we brought to Iraq and to um, Afghanistan and to Libya. And this is a consequence of the arms that we, as the U.S., have predominantly been responsible for pouring into the region. Uh, our partners, Saudi Arabia, has been funding and arming as well. There are real things we could do to stop ISIS in its tracks, but to be attacking, to be bombing, to be shooting up, basically continues this cycle of violence and is the best recruiting agent possible for ISIS and Al-Qaeda. Uh, this is a crisis that we actually have caused 
and have the power to fix. And you can go back to al-Qaeda, by the way, as you probably know, in Afghanistan and understand how the CIA actually, you know, uh, created the international jihad as part of stirring up trouble for Russia. Yeah, I recently did a story on that, combining uh, several articles from Salon, New York Times, etc., that goes to explain that the the U.S. wanted to fight the communists at the time in the That's 1980s, right. and they That's said right. they're the godless communists. So let's make uh, Muslims more fundamentalist, and so they'll want to fight the communists more. Oops. Okay. Yes, exactly. So now, of course, our new answer is no. That's right. Let's turn around and carpet bomb them. Yes. And and I just saw a, a barbaric debate among the Republicans where they were literally having an argument about should we kill civilians indiscriminately or should we kill the family members of people That's we right. think we are that that we think are terrorists. And in fact, if you're not prepared to slaughter thousands of innocent children, you are not up to the cause of being commander in chief. Yeah, you're not Winston Churchill-esque enough yes. uh, according yes. to those questions and answers. So, uh, in a Green Party debate, uh, do you guys also have a, a, a discussion over how shall we murder the civilians in the Middle East? <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, what what if you're commander in chief, you're running for president, if you're yeah. commander in chief, how do you defeat ISIS? Yes. We stop ISIS in its tracks by stopping the funding of ISIS, which we can control through Saudi Arabia. Our partner, our ally, needs to stop funding them. You know, after 9-11, Saudi Arabia was supposed to clean up its act. So, you know, and Saudi Arabia needs to also stop arming them. So we create an arms embargo. We could stop selling weapons to the Saudis, for one thing, to whom we have sold a hundred billion dollars worth of weapons in the last five years alone. So we can single-handedly shut down on the flow of weapons to ISIS through our own sales and also through our allies. We can stop the funding. And if the Saudis aren't willing to stop the funding, we seize their bank accounts and ensure that they stop funding. And we can also ensure that Turkey closes its border to the flow of militias uh, and ensure that Turkey you know, there How are, do we there get are Turkey constraints. to do that? Well, Turkey is a member of NATO right now, so mm -hmm. maybe their NATO membership is on the line, or their funds uh, also get impounded, freezed, and seized. Right. Well, there's a lot of so in the old days, uh, which is not that old. Uh, I think Saudi Arabia was a major uh, funder of ISIS and, and Wahhabi fundamentalist terrorists, especially fighting against Shia, like uh, Bashar Assad in Syria. Now they realize that Frankenstein they created has turned on them. So I, I think but, the Saudis are scared of ISIS. But these weapons are still ISIS. flowing uh, freely. I mean, they may not be intentionally going to ISIS now, but they're going to other uh, terrorist groups. So Saudi Arabia is still very implicated in funding uh, fundamentalist jihadi groups all around the globe. Now. I think one of the issues is that now ISIS does have oil, and so how do they mm -hmm. sell the oil? Well, mm -hmm. they just go to the uh, the market and they go, okay, I, I'll give it to you for a quarter of what it's worth. You're going to make 75 percent. And that greed becomes unstoppable. So a lot of it flows through Turkey. There's a report yes. uh, in, uh, I think, Zero uh, Hedge Fund or Zero Hedge, sorry. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> Zero Hedge Fund would be different. Um, uh, about how the, some of the tankers are going through Turkey and then to Israel and then being shipped down. Mm -hmm. And it's mixed in with yes. the illegal Kurdish oil, which we're generally in favor of. Mm -hmm. So, okay, I bring that up because it's not that easy. So that gets complicated. You've got a couple of allies there. That are uh, benefiting a little bit from this, yep, and it is mixed in with the Kurdish oil, which we generally don't mind. Yes. So how do how do we make right. that stop? Right. Okay. So it's not easy and it's not clean, mm -hmm. but neither is bombing them uh, easy or clean. In fact, we know that bombing and and uh, shooting them up is extraordinarily counterproductive, as well as being, you know. It's a blunt instrument, you know, even with drones, the best instrument they have out there for doing this. We know that nine out of ten are the wrong guys. So, you know, how we stop this is by doing the best that we can. And we have, see, we haven't even tried. You know, we don't even mention this. This is the elephant in the room. We can control the flow of our own arms. So how about start there? Because we're supplying the majority of arms. We're arming all sides in the Middle East. How about we have a weapons embargo to the Middle East? You know, and this goes hand in hand with needing to move to a green economy ourselves. Because the moment we do that, then we become independent of the Saudis. But 
the Democrats and the Republicans, you know, they love the Saudis because the Saudis are doing our dirty work and the Saudis are giving us oil. And in return for that, we turn them loose. You know, Bernie Sanders wants the Saudis to get their hands dirty as if they're not dirty enough, you know, and to do our dirty work for us. But this is just going to perpetuate that cycle of violence. So we need to start doing the right thing. And there are others that really want to see the right thing happen too, but we so need to lead the way. I, I think a, a critique from the other side would, would say to you, yeah, okay, you're going to do that with uh, Turkey and, and whoever else is involved in that trade, and then the oil is going to get a little more expensive. And then you're going to clamp down on Saudi Arabia, and the oil is going to get a lot more expensive. So, uh, you know, and Iraq needs weapons to fight against ISIS, and you're going to stop those weapons, and maybe they're in trouble, and then oil gets even more expensive. Well, that's going to uh, come back on the American people, and it's going to be a tax on the American people. This How do you answer This that? is exactly why we need an emergency conversion to a green economy which is what we need to do if we're going to survive the climate uh, crisis that we are plunging into headlong right now. Coming out of COP, you know, we have a little bit of, um, you know, flowery language, but there's absolutely nothing behind it. You know, it's, it's more, uh, you know, it's, it's more of a vacuum than it's ever been coming out of, the, uh, out of the COP conferences. So we're calling for an emergency conversion. We need to declare a climate emergency. We, you know, when Pearl Harbor was bombed, we declared an emergency, and within six months, 25% of the economy had moved to a wartime footing from zero to 25% of the economy in six months. So we can do a very rapid conversion, building on the capacity that we have already to convert to clean renewable energy. But Dr. Stein, I mean, terrorism uh, it kills thousands of people every year, and it's not like climate change does that, does it? <laughs> uh, yeah, right. You know, terrorism in this country has killed, you know, uh, if you're talking about right-wing fundamental, right-wing Christian terrorism, last count I saw was something around 49, and it was about 45 killed by uh, Islamic-associated uh, terrorism. So, you know, it's 90 a day that are killed from handgun terrorism, and 1,000 so far this year killed by police uh, terror. So, you know, in the scheme of things, these little, you know, grassroots terror groups who get their hands on our weapons, basically, uh, they're not such a big threat to us. And in fact, if we had, uh, if we weren't selling our souls for the oil, they wouldn't be a threat to us whatsoever. And they would shut down without our money and without our arms. So how many people do you think are killed by the severe storms that climate change generally causes? You know, we, well, we know we can't tie it to one You know, storms aren't the biggest, event. storms are not the biggest uh, health impact. The biggest health impact is actually starvation and mm -hmm. drought. Um, and then, you know, there's some from weather, but the big devastation is from uh, drought and people who don't have enough to eat. And according to uh, UN agencies, Actually, this is Kofi Annan, the former, you know, uh, Secretary General. Uh, his report a couple of years back was that it was about a half a million people a year, mm -hmm. and that's just as things are ramping up. And you know, according to Jim Hansen, who's the you know foremost uh, climate scientist in the Western Hemisphere, so his prediction is that it could be as soon as five decades from now. So as soon as 50 years from now, if we haven't dramatically changed course, like right away, we're looking at the breakup, not just the meltdown, but the breakup of Greenland and the West Antarctic ice sheet, each of which represent 25 feet of sea level rise. And these are not like a slow gradual melt. This is a precipitous breakup where this stuff plunges into the ocean and you get these huge tsunamis and all of a sudden sea level is up by five feet and then the next day it's 10 feet. And mm -hmm. this isn't a good thing. You know, this is like uh, the end of the road for half of the coastal cities. This is why it's really important, in my view, to understand that this is an emergency that makes Pearl Harbor look like peanuts. And this is why we need to, you know, get down to the business of immediately converting, like as if we have just been attacked on all coastal cities imaginable. We've just been attacked. It's time to put everybody to work on uh, clean renewable energy, on a healthy local food system, on public transportation. This will revive our economy. It will turn the tide on climate change, and it will make wars for oil obsolete.
I feel like they're going to look at this interview 50 years from now and and go, oh wait, some of them did know, like because there's going to be like, how could they have known? They couldn't have known that the sea level was going to rise that dramatically. And they're going to look back and no, no, there were people who who said it, and then they were totally ignored. <laughs> and you know what? If if we don't change course, and this actually comes to pass, there will be no looking back. You mm -hmm. know, there will be no looking back because we. You know, this is it for civilization as we know it and potentially humankind. And that's not only because of the devastation of losing the cities, but it's also because we're in the midst of a great extinction right now. Mm. We are at the beginning of a great extinction. And you know who survives great extinctions? Well, cockroaches. Exactly. And mammals <laughs> that are the size of a squirrel or smaller. Mm -hmm. Creatures like us that have a substantial food requirement, you know, don't make it through a great extinction where the food maybe chain gets why, disrupted. Maybe that's why Ted Cruz doesn't mind. He's like, I'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's not right. So uh, now let's get to the elephant in the room, Bernie Sanders. So now I'm sure this is the question you get most often by far. Uh, but people will say, well, Bernie Sanders is incredibly progressive. So why do we need the Green Party when we have a real progressive in the race? Because unfortunately, the Democratic Party has this thing called a kill switch, which they, you know, which they created after a peace candidate, uh, George McGovern, won the nomination back in 1972. Mm -hmm. And the Democratic Party didn't want that to happen again. So they changed a few things around. One is that they have these things called Super Tuesday, which you need a whole lot of corporate money in order to survive, run simultaneously uh, TV ads all over the place. And you... Um, and then you have the superdelegates, which basically allow party insiders to control the margin of error uh, and the unpredictability in the, uh, in the actual uh, nominating convention. And Hillary and Bill are very busy scooping up those, uh, those uh, delegates, which control about 20% of the vote. And so, but that's the argument that's they their used to say that Obama couldn't beat Hillary Clinton, but he did. Well, so, he beat Hillary Clinton because he had the banks behind him. I don't think Bernie's going to get that. Bernie is not going to get that kind of corporate money because he's not going to sell his soul the way that Barack Obama did. So he's very unlikely. Do you think Barack Obama was a corporate candidate? Oh, absolutely. There's no doubt about it. I mean, look what he did when he came to office, you know. Uh, the first thing he did was bail out Wall Street, you know, when the public was demanding otherwise and his base was demanding otherwise, you know, he showed who his true masters are. So, you know, I don't think Bernie's going to do that. Bernie doesn't have the money. I don't think he's going to have the money. Well, he's and, got $44 million. Uh, that's That was the number he raised. Right, and Hillary's recently. going for $2 billion, you know, so yeah. she's, she's well out ahead. And, you know, that the party is already you know, pushing back on him in a very big way. You know, and you can look at how their debates get staged and the kinds of questions that get asked and so on. You know, he's being made to look like mm, maybe he's bidding for the vice presidential position or something. Mm -hmm. I wish him all the power in the world, but he's not the first candidate with integrity to challenge inside the Democratic Party. You can look at Dennis Kucinich, who basically got wiped out from the debates, and then he got redistricted by the party. You could look at, um, you know, Al Sharpton or Dean, Howard Dean, and the Dean scream. Because then the DNC, you know, if they don't like what you're doing, they will run a PR campaign against you. And they did it with the Dean scream. They wiped him out when he looked like he was going to be a threat with some, you know, absolutely outrageous campaign that had nothing to do with him, or Jesse Jackson, who got wiped out for being, you know, a, um, an anti-Semite uh, because he wasn't pro-Israel enough. You know, that was a completely concocted campaign because he was a threat to the game plan of the DNC. So the DNC is not going to turn around and love Bernie. Um, in spite of however, you know, fabulous he may be doing, he's going to be pushed back against. So he's very unlikely. He's not the first great Democratic candidate to raise these issues. And while these rebels make a valiant stand inside the Democratic Party, the party keeps marching to the right over the decades. So I think it's really important to look at the larger game plan here and whether uh, retrenching from independent politics and crawling back into the party and preventing a real base from building, you know, 
it's not like my chances are so great. I'm not holding my breath. I'm not ruling it out either. But what I can do outside of the Democratic Party is build. And mm -hmm. we can put our feet down and we can grow. And if you look at, for example, Syriza, not that Syriza is, is a perfect example, and it's not as though mm -hmm. uh, in Greece. Yep. it's not a done deal in Greece. It's still you know a, a crazy, moving, dynamic picture. But they had to get to 1%, then they had to get to 3%, then they had to get to 7 and then a few elections later, they were suddenly a, a plurality. You've got to be able to grow. And inside the Democratic Party, you basically get destroyed, you raise really important issues, uh, but then it goes up in a puff of smoke and those resources get dumped back into the party, which Bernie has already said he will do. If you're playing real politics, you've got to be rooting against Bernie Sanders winning the Democratic primary so that you could be a real alternative to Hillary Clinton and the Republicans. I am agnostic on the Democratic Party and I have a lot of respect for Bernie's struggle and I wish him all the best in the world. We're using two different strategy, strategies around a similar domestic agenda. We have different foreign policy agendas, uh, you know, not only like how to deal with ISIS and <coughs> it's not go get them. Um, Saudi Arabia, you know, it's rather it's shutting down, uh, you know, the the weapons profiteering that's created such a mess here, uh, and the military-industrial complex, et cetera. You know, so we have different views on <coughs> different views on Palestine, and what is the your need view on Palestine? That you know, our foreign policy, including with Israel, including with Egypt, and and uh, Saudi Arabia, should be guided by international law and human rights, and Israel has been a flagrant uh, violator of human rights and international law through the occupations, through the slaughter, uh, and the war crimes committed against Gaza. So we should not be in the business of funding the Netanyahu government to the tune of $8 million a day. And now they're talking about making it even more. So Bernie and I differ there. Um, Why? What do you think uh, Bernie Sanders' position on that is? Well, he's kind of no questions asked about Israel, you know, and that we need to stand strong for Israel and Israel has a right to defend itself. I think that's not a defensible policy given the uh, human rights and international law violations being uh, being conducted by the Netanyahu government. So, you know, of course the mainstream would answer back to you, of course Israel has a right to defend itself. How could you argue against that? So what do you what do you want to do? You want to just uh, get out of the West Bank and Gaza Strip, then the Palestinians will attack Israel. You're being naive. How would you answer that? Well, you know, it's against international law to be an occupying force to start with, and it's against international law to uh, enforce uh, collective punishment. So, you know, it's entire regions that are being uh, slaughtered here. So, you know, there's, uh, yes, Israel. Human rights abuses should be stopped on all sides, and they are occurring on all sides. But Israel's so massively dwarfs uh, the abuses and the murders, et cetera, going on uh, from the part of the Palestinians that that there's there's nothing comparable going on here. And you know, the U.S. has not been an honest broker in trying to help create a peace process. We've been sort of locked into the Israeli process here, which has not been a process at all. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, I keep coming back to the same thing, which is not surprising, which is how do you break through? Because if, if you say that on, on TV, the Chuck Todds of the world, etc., will, in their minds at least, disqualify you immediately. They'll, they'll say, oh, that's an unacceptable position. How could you say that Israel is oppressing the Palestinians more, committing more acts of violence than the Palestinians are, that's not an acceptable position to have. Well, I mean, you can have your opinions, but you can't have your own facts, you know. And uh, the Israelis have killed uh, many, many thousands of Gazans in the last couple of wars, while it's something like a hundred um, Israelis, mostly soldiers, who've died. You know, I mean, the deaths are just staggeringly, you know, unequal. So it's not like there's two parties that are fighting. You know there. what they there's say to that, which is, look, they're hiding uh, in the cities and they're 
using their civilians as shields. That's fine. They can say that. They will say what they will say. You know, they're not the deciders here. You know, and the American people deserve to hear uh, the other side of the story, which people find increasingly compelling. And you know, the facts are very much on the side of the human rights here, which are being massively abused uh, on the part of the Palestinians. And you know, the Israelis are terrified too. You know, we need an even hand to to bring them together, but let me tell you, no one is doing this more effectively than the human rights groups on the ground between Israelis and Palestinians. They are the ones who need to be lifted up here. They are the ones who are capable of engendering trust and uh, confidence to be able to move forward and calm the nerves on both sides and have a truce on both sides. You know, there, Things have been so hopeless from the point of view of the occupied, starved, decimated, and murdered uh, Palestinians. Things have been so hopeless that it's no wonder that these intifadas uh, keep breaking out every couple of years. Uh, you know, it's, it's no surprise. So there needs to be some hand of justice here that is moving things forward. And it, because Israelis and Palestinians have already been able to solve this on the ground where they are working together, this is a situation that can be fixed. But we need to start standing up uh, on the side of human rights and international law. So let's get, okay, that's a, see, if you have an opportunity and you can explain it, you might win that argument. You're not uh, kidding. I mean, right. which is why this all it, comes but it, back but, but it's to forcing our way into this conversation. But it won't be easy. I mean, obviously the, there will be enormous shouting back, how dare you, you know, etc. And we, we know how that works. So let's get back to domestic politics for a second. Now, if if Hillary Clinton wins the Democratic nomination and and then you have a monster on the other side, Trump, Cruz, whoever it might be, I don't know that I there is a non-monster on the other side, maybe Kasich. Like a bad guy and, and and disagree with his policies, but not a monster. But okay, let's say it's Trump. You know that the the most common criticism you're going to get is, oh no, we can't have it be Trump, oh, and you're going to help him if you take votes away from the Democratic candidate. How do you handle that criticism? You know, it's it's important to look at the track record of Barack Obama. Um, you know, and Hillary Clinton is a monster compared to Barack Obama. But even under Obama, we had policies that make George Bush look like a wimp on practically every count. Whether you look at the massive expansion of these wars, you know, the surge into Afghanistan and Libya and Yemen and the drone wars going uh, all over the Middle East and now into Africa. Uh, if you look at the uh, demonization of immigrants, you know, the Republicans are the party of hate and fear-mongering, but the Democrats are the party of uh, deportations and, uh, and detentions. And more immigrants deported under Obama than under, you know, practically the other presidents combined. The oppression of the press, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the corporate trade deals that are sending our jobs overseas, the bailouts for Wall Street. Under Bush, it was like 700 billion. Under Obama, it's 17 trillion and counting. So, you know, the propaganda by the Democrats is one thing, and Obama is a gracious personality. You know, he's got a nice smile and a very nice way of speaking, but if you dig into what he's actually done, it's pretty horrible. And the resistance melts down because he's a Democrat, and people are told not to make it harder for him, you know, but in fact, uh, the uh, the movement collapses. The social movements collapse under a Democrat. So you got to point out to people what the track record is, and that the lesser evil has just proven itself to be a conduit to the greater evil. And we have to stand up. You know, we need to get uh, to get a spine and to stand up for what it is that we deserve. Because neither of the corporate parties are going to give it to us. We're going to have to stand up and fight for it. And yeah. It's not going to be easy, and there may be some tough times ahead, but that's going to happen whether it's a Democrat or a Republican in office. The biggest problem is that about half of people are not bothering to come out to vote because the Democrats wind up being just a shade less predatory than the Republicans. So young people aren't coming out to vote, and Latinos aren't voting. You know, if you put together simply a coalition of young people who are in debt, that's 40 million right there, and 16 million Latinos who vote, 
not to mention the 12 million who are at risk for deportation under Democrats. You know, you have a winning coalition. In the words of Alice Walker, the biggest way people give up power is by not knowing we have it to start with. We need to stop believing the propaganda that we are powerless. We need to stand up with the power of our convictions, the power of our vision, and stand up and fight for it and let it generate a force that cannot be stopped. So, it, I'm not an Alex Jones guy. I, he, I think he's kooky, obviously. So, he's got all these conspiracies. And one of his favorite things is false flag operations. <laughs> but if you were of that mind, it, you could almost make a case for the Republican Party being a false flag operation in order to get uh, the corporatist Democrats to win. So, in reality, the Democratic Party is enormously corporatist, right? I don't think Bernie Sanders is, but certainly Hillary Clinton is, certainly Barack Obama was, certainly Bill Clinton was. Bill Clinton's the one that did all the deregulation in the first place. Yeah. He deregulated the banking industry, and now obviously Hillary Clinton takes millions of dollars from the banks, not only in her campaign contributions, but directly into her pocket when she gives those speeches. And the so, jails, <coughs> and, and all of that as well. So if you were, and I don't think they are, but if you, and again, maybe we're talking about the invisible hand of power. If you were to design it, if you had like the Koch oh, yeah. brothers scheming, yeah. etc., you know what they would do if they really wanted a great plan was, oh, yeah. they would come up with a monstrous right wing yes. that would force people into having no choice at all yes. but to vote for the moderate alternative of the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. And then they would say to people like you, you're not all allowed in because exactly. we cannot risk the monsters winning. Exactly. And so we must go with the moderate corporate position and then in the end they get exactly what they want. Right. But where that breaks down is when people are utterly miserable and desperate even under the Democrat. You know, and we saw Obama basically lose Congress because he didn't stand up for what it was that he led people to believe that they would get. And it's in that way that the lesser evil paves the way to the greater evil because it doesn't satisfy what people need. And those needs have now become so overwhelming that if you talk to young people who aren't sort of in the pocket of the Democratic Party, they're not voting. They're not voting. Yeah. You know, and, and by not voting, we lose the most progressive constituencies and the Republicans will win every time. So you know, I think people are desperate enough right now that they're really longing to hear other strategies. They're longing to hear other ways to put this together. And in my view, you know, bring it on, whether it's whether it's Trump or Kasich or Bush or whether they do a brokered convention and bring back Romney, which is highly likely to happen if it looks like Trump is going to prevail, because the Republicans know that while Trump has some support within the Republicans, he has enormous negatives, even within the Republican Party, and even bigger outside of the Republican So he's a losing candidate. He's a losing enough candidate that people have every reason to stand up and vote their values, but likely he's not going to get in anyhow. I, I want to ask you, I mean, I could talk to you about policy all day long, but I want to ask you one more policy question. You mentioned Black Lives Matter earlier, and you mentioned the prisons uh, just a, a second ago. So if if you were president, what would you do about the issue of civil rights, prison reform, um, you know, all the protests in Ferguson and all, so all those other places? So there's a lot of piecemeal solutions that are being offered. What would be, I don't know if you have a dramatic solution, what would be your solution? Yes, to this? okay. So there are specific solutions to the problem of police violence. Communities should control their police and not the other way around. So we need to have uh, fully empowered um, uh, citizen review boards that do the hiring and firing, including of the police chiefs and so on. And they need to be able to get rid of uh, abusive police. We need accountability of the police and there should be prosecutors who are at the ready. They don't have to wait to be appointed uh, you know, in special cases. They should be ready to go so that police uh, and all deaths, actually, all deaths and si significant injuries that happen uh, inside police custody should be uh, investigated. So we can start having accountability. But you're right, the, the problem is much bigger and much deeper. So we can address the acute issue of police violence through those two means. But we also need to address racist violence in its many forms, including economic violence and school 
segregation, which becomes school violence and the school-to-prison pipeline. You know, we need to have integrated schools. We need to have fully funded schools. We need to end uh, the privatization of our schools and the attack on teachers' unions. Uh, we need to have really good quality schools that are not teaching to the test, which is very destructive, especially for challenged learners. Um, we need to have a right to a job, and this gets back to our Green New Deal, which is sort of the basis of, of my campaign, that people have a right to a job at a living wage, uh, and a job which is healthy for your community. Um, if we are providing jobs and hope and good education and health care, because right now, if you're African American and you don't have access to a good school nor to good health care and, and you get all the toxic stuff dumped on your community for being black, you lose 14 years off the average African-American life in conjunction with poor education. Wow, 14 wait, years. Tell me again why you would lose 14 years. So it's seven years just for being African-American. That's the loss of lifespan, just for being black. Uh, on average, on because average. of all the different socioeconomic conditions, et cetera. Well, you know, even when mm -hmm. they do these studies and control for the socioeconomics, they find that just being black brings a seven-year loss of lifespan. and So is there anything we can do about that? Oh, absolutely, yes. But let me just add to that. That's then compounded by the loss of life from having poor education. So it's seven years of poor education, which most African Americans have to contend with, on top of seven years being lost for being black. So that's 14 years off, your, off the average life of a poor uh, an African-American that hasn't had access to a good school system. Yes, there's lots we can do about that, you know, simply by providing good jobs as well as by providing good health care, quality food, you know, uh, getting rid of the pollution which falls hardest, uh, environmental racism which falls hardest on African-American communities. All these are factors that add up and, um, you know, take years off the lives of, of you know, this is genocidal. So, Dr. Stein, obviously we don't have money for uh, food in America. We've got to go conduct wars. And yeah, exactly. Sounds crazy. Exactly. Uh, and you're not allowed to talk about economic violence or state violence. Those are not allowed in, right. in, in mainstream media. So, okay, now, uh, finally, I want to get back to what I, what I normally do in interviews and what I promised in the beginning uh, and talk about you just for a second. How in the world did you get into politics? Why did you get into politics? You were a doctor, I so know. what happened? Uh, in short, I, I got tricked, but you know, there I was in the clinic, uh, and also the mother of young kids at that time, and looking at this epidemic in our communities of asthma and cancer and learning disabilities and Alzheimer's disease and obesity and diabetes. And I said to myself, yikes, we didn't have this in my generation growing up. Now all these kids have it. And, you know, and it didn't feel so good to me to just be throwing pills at people and then pushing them back out to the things that were making them sick. So I became involved with communities. I was recruited to help, you know, be the doc to go explain to boards of health or to the legislature um, why we shouldn't build that incinerator uh, that was polluting the fish supply or, you know, why we should clean up the coal plants that's giving us the asthma and the cancers, et cetera. And I began doing that and working in coalitions with communities and finding that when we worked together, we could actually get things done. Um, and Was that empowering? Did you, did you get things done on the local level? And that on the local and the state level until we hit a wall. And we hit that wall uh, at the end of the 1990s. And it was just part of that political transition we were going through at that time. The Democrats used to be our friend, and then they weren't our friend anymore. And... You know, they were, they were uh, installing the likes of Deval Patrick, you know, in my state, who was very much like, um, you know, Barack Obama. Uh, progressive social agenda, but economically, you know, kind of indistinguishable from a Republican. You know, the, the thing that I notice when Democrats uh, nominate Supreme Court justices, and that's the number one reason they give for, hey, don't support Green Party, don't support progressives, mm -hmm. don't support that, because we need... Democrats to nominate Supreme Court justices. But if you notice with Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, the f first thing they say is, don't worry, the justices are pro business. And I'm like, no, no, but that's what I was worried about. <laughs> I'm not anti business, we run a business here, but when they, pro business actually means pro giant corporations yes. Yes. and and the, the Roberts Court was even with the four liberal liberal justices on there, and they are liberal in a lot of ways. 
but uh, it is the most pro-corporate Supreme Court in United States history. They have mm -hmm. uh, voted with the Chamber of Commerce uh, mm -hmm. more often than than yes. any other in history. Yes, yes, exactly. And when people say, "Well, what about the Supreme Court?" You know, one of the answers to that is, "Well, how about the climate crisis?" You know, because. Um, uh, the Democrats and the Republicans are not going to do what it takes to fix it, you know, which means really standing up to fossil fuels and, you know, and creating an emergency plan, which they are they are not doing. Um, but to your question about, you know, sort of the progression here, I just wanted to mention that when we got together in my state, in my home state in Massachusetts, we said, okay, so let's get the money out of politics. Let's fix this. Here, here. And we passed by voter referendum because the legislature wouldn't touch it. We passed campaign finance reform, working together across many uh, issue areas. We passed it, and the legislature, which was 85% Democratic, repealed it on a voice vote. Right. And to me, that said, okay, this is not going to get fixed inside the Democratic Party. And around then, I got recruited by the Green Party to just do what I was doing. I said, run for office? Are you kidding? I had nothing to do with any political parties until I was the... Uh, young age of 50 years old. I, it like took me that, it was that much desperation. And what I said when I was asked to run for office was, well, nothing else is working, you know, might as well try that. And it was really out of desperation. But I found once I started running for office, where you're kind of a, you know, you're kind of like public property, you go where you're told and you talk to everybody. I discovered, my God, there's this incredible, you know, pent up hunger for, um, a genuine, you know, a, a genuine process here, and that people do not trust the establishment political parties, and people may not have the time to research these things, but they can smell a rat. They know if you're a rat, they know if you're on the corporate payroll, and they know when you're not. And I found that among the people I could talk to, whether they were on the right or the left, they just really respected that there was someone out there who was not uh, on the corporate take, and that just. I felt like, oh my God, this is so different from how politics is built, that it really can be done in a way that, that has integrity and that really lifts up uh, the voices of everyday people and provides the solutions that people are clamoring for. So on that note, though, finally, I'd ask about, uh, as you're in this long fight, uh, how do you not get discouraged? So obviously, look, 450,000 votes is nothing to sneeze at, uh, and it, it's the most votes a female's ever gotten for president. And uh, but at the same time, obviously, it's a small percentage, obviously, right? And uh, and and the Green Party, the progressive movement, isn't flowering with victory at this point. Um, so as you fought, and you know that you said the, the losses uh, began in the 1990s when you realized you'd lost the Democratic Party, even in the state of Massachusetts. Um, how do you fight through all of those challenges? Well, number one, you know, it's knowing that there is no alternative here because otherwise, our jobs are all gone. You know, uh, the climate is coming down, is crashing on our heads, and you have an entire generation of young people who are locked in debt. And, you know, African Americans who cannot walk down the street, you know, without taking their life in their hands. So, you know, to my mind, we have no alternative but to stand up and fight. You know, we are in that corner right now, and or, you know, at the edge of the cliff, and we're going over the cliff, or we're going to stand here and fight. And, you know, and the choice is pretty clear when it comes down to that. But, you know, it's more than that. It's knowing that there are so many ways that this house of cards is falling down right now. This is like a house that's been completely eaten from the inside by termites. And it's just a little puff of wind, and it's going to come down. You don't know exactly when or which crisis it is that's going to bring it down, but the system is going to implode. Uh, and there are so many ways that that can happen. It's waiting to happen. It could be tomorrow, for all we know. And there are so many ways that we as people can rise up and take control democratically. And the one, the one that I keep pointing to, because it's important to know, this isn't like theoretical. This could happen right now. Tell your friends who are in debt. They can come out to the election in November of 2016 and cancel their debt. If 40 million people get word that they can come out and cancel their debt, they're going to do it. I have yet to find the young person in debt who hears that they have an option to support a candidate that will cancel it. I have yet to find the young person who doesn't become a missionary 
for the campaign. It's interesting. You, you give an answer that's very similar to the other presidential candidate that I interviewed while he was in the race, which is Professor Larry Lessig. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and his answer was, what's the alternative? You lie down and take it? Yeah. Right? So yeah, exactly. there are warriors uh, fighting for the right causes, all in your own ways. And uh, it's a pleasure to talk to you guys about it. And, and you're not alone in thinking that the consequences might be catastrophic. So uh, I just watched the movie The Big Short. I'd already read the book that was mm. about the economic collapse mm -hmm. and four mm. groups of people who realized that it was coming. Now they profited off of it uh, and they bet against the housing market, but they're smart guys and they were right and they were generally distru distrustful of Wall Street and the mm -hmm. and the corporate issues. One of them, the one who was most right and the one that was uh, uh, first to realize the problem, at the end of the movie, which was not in the book, uh, and the movie's just coming out now, uh, it says he's now investing only in water. And so what that means, and I've heard Dylan Radigan talk about uh, the wealthiest people in the in the world are now mainly uh, investing in uh, farmlands. Mm -hmm. So that means yeah. that there are some uh, there yeah. are some people with money and deep knowledge who think just like you do, it's coming. That's right. And what they don't know is that it will come in many ways many of which are unpredictable. So you cannot protect yourself from what's going to happen, except through a collective solution. We need to create a world that's going to work for all of us, or it's going to work for none of us. Yeah. All right, Dr. Jill Stein running for the presidency under the Green Party. Thank you so much for joining us on the Young Turks. Really appreciate it. Great talking with you, Tank.